Well, I invite you to take your Bible and let's turn to Psalm 54. Psalm 54. If you are following along in one of our church Bibles, we are on page 445. 445. On October 20th, 1947, the House of Un-American Activities Committee held its first hearing in the hunt to flush communism out of Hollywood. The hounds were out for blood, and few employees were safe from the government's scrutiny. Many of those who were blacklisted for communist sympathies were turned in by their fellow co-workers. And some would even go out of their way to name names just to prove their own innocence. Such was the case for one screenwriter named Richard Collins. Richard submitted 26 names of alleged communists, including his close friend and writing partner, Paul Jericho. When questioned about Richard's actions, Paul said this, quote, It turns out he had been talking to the FBI long before he went to the committee. Once he testified, it was the end of our friendship. It was a very close and personal betrayal, end quote. Most of us know what that feels like to one degree or another, don't we? Maybe not to that extreme, but quick show of hands. Has anyone here ever been betrayed? Okay, I see a few hands. We have at least a dozen honest people with us in church this morning. At least a dozen, and that that warms my heart. That makes me feel so good. Thank you for being honest. Uh, Betrayal, slander, malignment, this happens to us. It happens to us more frequently than we want, more frequently than we'd like to admit maybe by a close friend, a family member, a coworker, a classmate in school. On the off chance that anyone here has lived a particularly blessed life, maybe you didn't raise your hand for a reason. Maybe it's true. You don't know what it feels like to be betrayed. Let me briefly describe it for you, at least how it's felt to me in the past. The poisonous sting of betrayal leaves a cavernous knot in the pit of your stomach. Your eyes darken, your breathing becomes shallow, and you lose a few inches of height. It is as though your flesh and your shadow exchange places on the pavement. Your body swells with electric vengeance and a strong desire to gross, to either clear your name or hide in shame or both. When you have been betrayed, your sense of justice soars. While you lock your bedroom door, pull the covers over your head, and just pray that everything would go away. Well, sadly, this is all just part of the human experience here in a fallen world. And history is full of betrayal. Marcus Brutus, the Rosenbergs, Benedict Arnold, Judas Iscariot, these names are not known for their virtue and their loyalty. These names are remembered for their betrayal because they were men and women just like you and me who betrayed fellow men and women just like you and me. Betrayal, slander, defamation, they are not unfamiliar concepts to any of us. We have all been there. So here's the question. Here's my question for you this morning. What do you do when you are betrayed? What do you do? How do we deal with it when it comes? Many implode, some explode, but how should we react to betrayal? Those of us who know the truth, love the truth, and live by the truth, those who are of the household of faith, how do we respond when we are betrayed? When your reputation has been wrongfully caked in the mud, where do you run, where do you turn to, and what do you do? Well, our text this morning was written by a man who knew a thing or two about betrayal. In fact, Psalm 54 is strategically placed within a whole string of psalms written by King David, and they are all about betrayal. In the previous psalm, Psalm 53, it begins with that famous statement, the fool says in his heart what? There is no God. And as we will see in our text, David is now surrounded by people just like that, godless fools who want to see him dead. Prior to Psalm 53, the setting for Psalm 52 is all about betrayal as well. The transcription there reads, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. A quick side note, those are terrible names. Can we just admit that? (laughs) Doeg and Ahimelech? 
I understand it was a different culture, a different time, but even today, I mean, I've known a few Josiahs. I've known a few people who have been named biblical names from the Old Testament. I have never met an Ahimelech, ever, in my entire life, or a Doeg. Those are awful names. Ahimelech, it sounds like a bad blood disease. Um, Doeg. Doeg was a foreigner and a sworn enemy of David. We know that. Unlike our psalm in Psalm 54, where David is being betrayed by his own countrymen. And by the time we get to Psalm 55, we see that he is even betrayed by a very close friend. Verses 12 through 14 of Psalm 55 cry out in anguish. For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. Now, I don't know how many people here were raised in church and how many people were saved later on in life. But for those of you who had the blessing of being raised in church, you probably understand what this feels like. You probably know that. If you were raised in church, and if you had godly friendships growing up, then you understand what David is talking about here when he says, we used to take sweet counsel together within God's house. We walked in the throng. And it hurts, doesn't it? It hurts when people who, who loved you and loved God wander off the reservation and abandon you and abandon the faith altogether. How do we make sense of that? How do we deal with that? Well, David knew what that felt like too. And he talks about it there. And that terrible, gross, personal betrayal in Psalm 55. As you can see, these psalms intensify as they go along. They go from the easily dismissed to the extremely personal. David has been betrayed by his enemies, by his own countrymen, and now by his own friends, his close friends. And so these psalms are all linked by this common theme, this theme that intensifies as each psalm builds on betrayal. And it becomes clear that David was an expert at being betrayed. So here is a man who can relate to our emotional beatdowns and then some. Now before we tear Psalm 54 apart and examine the text one piece at a time, let's take a look at the introductory remarks as they sit here on the page. They're found there in the heading. It says, To the choir master with stringed instruments, a mascal of David. Notice that this Hebrew poem is actually a song. It was written for the man in charge of music, to be set to music. These words are not simply written to be read, like we're reading them this morning. They were written to be accompanied by strings, to be sung out loud. This is a teaching song. It's like an audible prayer. It entreats God and it edifies the listener. It's an ancient Holy Spirit-inspired hymn. But there's more. A mascal of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? Now you might be wondering, who are the Ziphites? I mean, I, I've not heard of them. The Israelites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites, sure. Most of us have heard of them. But who are these Ziphites? They don't ring a bell. Well, you don't need to turn there right now, but the backstory to Psalm 54 is found in 1 Samuel 23. The Philistines were attacking a Jewish border town called Kilah. And David asked the Lord what he should do about it. He said, Lord, do you want me to go save the city or not? And God said, yeah, sure, of course, I want you to go save the city. So he did. He drove the Philistines out, he rescued the city, and he stayed there for a while. And you would think that this would be a good place for David to lay low, since he was on the run from Saul, who was still trying to kill him, and was the king of Israel at the time. And Kilo was on the road less traveled and not immediately accessible to Jerusalem. So it seemed like a decent spot to hold out. However, word got out, and it got back to Saul, so that he knew where David was hiding. And so, hearing that, Saul assembled everyone that he could, and he began a march against the city of Kilo. Well, hearing that the king was on his way, David ran for the south, and into the hill country of a wilderness called Ziph. There they would play this deadly game of cat and mouse, this dangerous game of man hunting man. And it is in this setting 
in the wilderness of Ziph, where 1 Samuel 23.19 says, Then the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us? And listen to how specific they get in their directions. He goes on to say, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish, on the hill of Hekilah, which is south of Jeshimon? Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him in the king's name to the king's hand. That's extremely specific. I mean, essentially they're saying, show us a map and we'll show you where David is hiding. We'll point him out. He's right here. He's at the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hekilah, which is just south of Jeshimon. I'll give you coordinates. I'll give you latitude and longitude. I'll tell you exactly where to find your prey. King Saul. But here's the rub. Here's the real salt in the wound. This is what makes it even worse. The people of Horish, who lived in the wilderness of Ziph, these Ziphites, were David's fellow tribesmen. They were his countrymen. Ziph is located in the tribal territory of Judah. And David is feeling the sting of betrayal because these were his people. They ate the same food, they wore the same clothes, they went to the same stores. These are his people. They had the same idioms, they had the same language, they had the same culture, they had the same ancestors, the same background. These are his people. His people within his people. This wasn't a happy time for David. This was a dark period of his life. And things were about to get worse. In fact, shortly after being betrayed by the Ziphites and having his location revealed to Saul, Saul was able to finally catch up with him. And the two found themselves on opposite ends of the same mountain. They got really close with the, to each other in close proximity. And just as Saul was finally about to capture his prey, I mean, he had him in his sights. I mean, he, all he had to do was just go down there and kill the man and put this whole thing to rest. Just as Saul was about to spring the trap and put an end to David, at that moment, a messenger appeared with word that the Philistines were invading the country. So Saul had to leave. He couldn't stick around. He was still king of Israel after all. He had to go back and do his duty. So he left, David lived, and that place became known as the Rock of Escape. But that doesn't change the fact that David is still at a low point when he writes this psalm. After all, Saul had once been a close friend, and now he was literally running for his life. And let's not forget that this psalm was written before God provided a way out for David to escape. It is written, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? So this introduction provides so much more. The introduction here to this psalm, so much more than just the author's signature. It doesn't just say this is a psalm of David written by yours truly and then end there. It provides a lot of information. It sets the stage and it tells us what we are reading, who it is for, who wrote it, when they wrote it, and even what it's supposed to sound like. Because this song is set to strings, not trumpets and cymbals. So having established all of that, let's read it together. Psalm 54. He says, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. The title of this morning's message is How to Pray When Betrayed. Because that is what we're looking at this morning. That's what this is. This is a prayer of a righteous man in the pit of despair. It is a hymn that tells and teaches, edifies and exhorts, languishes and lifts. 
It aligns our focus and redirects our gaze from the darkness of our present situation to the God who saves. This is a small song. As far as psalms go, it's not even one of the larger ones. It's a smaller psalm, but we have so much to learn from it. So let's begin by examining David's cry for help. His cry for help. Look at the first three verses. He cries, O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Our song begins with this cry. God save me. God save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. This phrase, by your name, is so important because David is calling on more than just God's identification. He's calling on more than just saying, hey, God, I know you're out there and I need your help and I want to make sure that I'm calling out to the right God right now. So I'm just going to, I'm going to call you out by name. He's doing more than that. This phrase, by your name, he's, he's calling on the Lord's character, his reputation, his good name. He simply refers to it here, but he heightens the importance of this name by, by waiting, by refusing to actually use it until verse 6. You will see that there in, in the word Lord on your page there in verse 6. It's probably printed differently than the other words on the page. And that's because in most Bibles, the translators capitalize all the letters when referring to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And this is the name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3. You will remember that God told Moses to go down to Egypt, free the people, and Moses' response was, okay, if I have to, but when I get there and the people want to know which God sent me, what should I tell them? What, what name should I provide? And God said, tell them, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. Tell them, Yahweh has sent you. And that is significant. It's incredibly significant, all the way up to Psalm 54 and beyond. Because that name, I am, refers to God as the eternal present. At all times, in all things, in every way, God is. In other words, That name contains all the characteristics that exclusively belong to God and to God alone. For example, he is self-eternal. He always is, always has been, and always will be. God is eternally one of a kind. There is no one like him. No one could ever possibly claim to be like God or even come close to being like he is because there is no one like him in the entire universe. There is no one like our God. He is one of a kind. He is also self-existent. That is to say that God doesn't need us. He doesn't need us to exist. He is not like even the ancient mythologies where, where so many of the Greeks and the Romans believed the only way their gods could survive would be if people continued to believe in them. Not our God. Our God doesn't need us to survive. He doesn't need us to exist. It's the other way around. We need Him to live and to breathe and to exist. When he says, I am who I am, he is saying, I will do what I will do. And often, we don't like that characteristic of God so much, do we? The fact that God will do what he will do, not what we will do. We would rather him do what we want rather than to submit to the fact that God will do as he wishes. He is also self-sufficient, self-sustaining, and self-sovereign. You see, when David says, Oh God, save me by your name, he is really saying, Oh God, save me because of who you are. Save me because of who you are. And David knows who God is because of Scripture and experience. So immediately he cries out, to the God he knows by name, and he begs to be vindicated by this God's awesome might, by his strength. Notice, too, and this is very important, that David doesn't take matters into his own hands here. Instead, he turns to God for help. He asks God to execute justice on his behalf. He relies on God to defend his innocence. I have to ask the question, how often 
do we do that? Even after the fact, let alone make that our priority. How often, whenever we're betrayed, whenever we're hurt, whenever we're stung, whenever we get hit and knocked down, dragged out by others, do we turn to the Lord immediately for deliverance? How often do we vindicate ourselves rather than take the matter to the one who really controls all things? When someone wrongs us and we feel that strong sense of justice swell up within us, how often do we take it into our own hands? Well, friends, God's vindication is way better than yours or mine. He doesn't need to hear both sides of the story. He already knows what's going on. He knows all things. He knows more about your situation than you do. He knows everything. So let's not be our own defenders. I know that's hard. That is a hard word. It's a hard word for you. It's a hard word for me. Because our natural knee-jerk reaction whenever we're hit in life is to what? Hit back. Or at least put up our arms in self-defense. But let's not try to deliver ourselves. Let's not try to make things right and maintain control over the situation. Let's not be our own defenders because that's foolish, folks. When you look at it from a larger perspective, when you step back for a moment and you look at our glorious God and how big He is and how much He loves us and how sovereign He is and how in control of everything He is, and you look at us in our limited perspective, and you look at the other person who's wronged us and their limited perspective, and to try and take those matters into our own hands, it's foolish, folks. It's foolish. It's weak. It's pitiful. And God is so much greater than all of that. Instead, let's follow Jesus' example as it is spelled out for us in 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Speaking of Jesus. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. That is what we have been called to do, to entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. We don't revile in return when we are reviled. We don't threaten when we are suffered. Instead, we entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Look at verse 2. David's cry for help doesn't stop there. He cries, Oh God, hear my prayer. Give ear to the words of my mouth. He says, Listen to me. Hear my prayer. Pay attention to what I am saying. For what good is a prayer if God won't listen to it? So he cries, Give ear to the words of my mouth. He includes this in his request because he knows, he understands the power of prayer. Beloved, prayer is the most powerful weapon we have. And to be honest with you, we don't use it enough. None of us do. It is the most powerful weapon that we have. To not use it in the battlefield of life is to deflect the enemy's bullets with a flyswatter. It's futile. We cannot afford to sheath our greatest defense. So long as God has an open ear, we have no reason to fear, and we have every reason in the world to approach the throne of grace with confidence and to make our petitions known to the Lord. Notice, too, that this prayer is audible. It's vocal. It's not some unspoken request or silent meditation of the heart. David doesn't mutter these words quietly under his breath with the knowledge that God knows all things anyway. He doesn't let his theology cripple him in a bad way. No, rather he cries out, Save me, O God, save me. I'm dying here, and I need deliverance. And in the end, God hears his cry. You know, it's easy for us to remember King David. David the king, with his mighty men and his wonderful exploits, ruling and reigning over the kingdom. And forget those years of torturous exile that preceded his rule. Psalms like these remind us that the story isn't over until it actually is over. And only God holds the pen when it comes to the story of our lives. Which brings us to verse 3. 
For strangers have risen against me. Ruthless men seek my life. They do not set God before themselves. Selah. Here we see the wicked. Although countrymen, these men were strangers. They were unknown persons to David. They had no cause to bring death to David. They didn't know him personally. They hadn't offended him personally. He didn't know them. These audacious men, they were looking for favor from the current king, and they wanted approval. The term strangers that we find here in our text, it was often referred to those outside of Israel. It was for those that that were not a part of Israel, and yet it's used here for those who are on the inside. For those who are of the tribe of Judah, these Ziphites. They just weren't acting like it by opposing God's faithful servant, by siding with the oppressor Saul, by ruthlessly seeking to kill David and oppose God. As the text says, they do not set God before themselves. Whereas David runs to the Lord in prayer, these men don't. They don't set God before themselves. Atheism drives them. And this is the secret. This is the key. This is why ruthless men fail in the end. This is why in all those Disney movies, the team with the black jersey doesn't win. Okay, at the very end. Here's why. Here's why ruthless men fail. It's because they have no regard for God. They have no regard for God. These are men who do not consider the ways of God. So a good man is hated for God's sake. And as a result, we have this prayer. This good prayer where one of God's children comes running to his heavenly father in need of help. Now let's pause for a moment and reflect on the frightening and terrifying truth that is found here in these verses. What is the implication of what we have read so far? Well, there are only two types of people represented here in this text. There is the stranger and the friend, the faithless and the faithful, the ruthless and and the reliant. And the same can be said for us. There are only two types of people in the world today. Things have not changed since the days of David. There are still only two groups of people out there. And you fall into one of these two categories. I do too. There are those who are godly and those who are godless. Period. There is no middle ground. You can't have one foot in God's camp and one foot in the enemy's camp. You're one or the other. You're either godly or godless. Those who put their faith in the Lord's strength and those who pursue man's favor. Those who have God before them and those who would rather stare at their own reflection in a mirror. Which one are you? Which group do you belong to this morning? I mean, think about it. Which side are you on? There is no indifference when it comes to your relationship with the God who made you. The God who became a man, died at the hands of sinful men to redeem mankind, and rose again so that we could be resurrected to eternal life. You either believe He is who He says He is, or you don't. You either trust in Him for salvation, or you don't. Friends, I'm begging you, and I pray this for you, every week, every day, I pray this for you, that you would not be the fool who says in his heart, no God. No God. In fact, if you look at that phrase in the Hebrew, we translate it, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Simply it just says, the fool in his heart says, no God. No God. If that's you, if you fall into the godless camp this morning, then I strongly encourage you, in light, of this, in light of this passage, in light of the entire testimony of Scripture, then you need to reevaluate where you stand in your rebellion against the God of the universe. Talk to one of us. We will unpack the gospel. We will explain this to you in greater detail, not in a condescending way, but in a way that pleads with you and urges you to please escape the wrath that is coming. Don't say in your heart, don't be a fool that says, no God, no God. Instead, respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins, and he will deliver you. 
Well, these first three verses record David's cry for help. He's been on a roll so far, turning to God, crying out to his deliverer, and then all of a sudden, bam, he slams on the brakes and he throws that word out there, Selah, Selah. Take a breath, stop the music, it's time for a key change. It is as though he is saying, enough, let's step back just for a moment, let's pause just for a minute and think through the implications of what's been stated already. He says, here's my situation. I've been betrayed. My life is in danger. I'm being hunted by godless men. But wait, what do I know about God? I'm in a bad situation. And I'll admit that. But what do I really know about God? Because that's what matters. It is after this break in the music, this pause in his distress where we now see David's confession of faith. His confession of faith. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. The music doesn't slowly build back up again after, after this, this break. Instead, it crescendos with this, Behold, behold. We should insert trumpets and French horns and strings and cymbals and maybe even a few electric guitars and, and floor-to-ceiling amps at this point. Because he says, Behold, in a very loud, emphatic way here, he says, Behold, God is my helper. This is a key change that changes so much more than just the music. Here we see David's confession of who God is and what he knows God will do. He asked for salvation and vindication in the first three verses. Now he affirms God's mercy in preserving his life. And look at what he says next. This is a wonderful part of the song, but as you can imagine, commentators are so quick to, to jump over verse 5. What does he say there? He will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Now let's just let that simmer for a minute. Let's think about that. He says, he will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. Let's be honest. As New Testament Christians, we don't like verses that highlight God's judgment very much, do we? I mean, after all, we have been commanded to love our enemies and to bless those who persecute us. We have been charged to turn the other cheek, offer the shirts off of our backs, and go the extra mile. And that is absolutely true. Every word of it, we have been called to do that. However, we should not pass over and dismiss God's righteous judgment so quickly. Rather, we should look at what this verse actually says. First of all, we see that God returns the evil. He doesn't create it. God doesn't make the evil out of thin air. He doesn't punish them with a new form of wickedness or a new form of evil. He returns it. He returns their iniquity back on them. He literally turns it to these men like flipping a mirror. They have worked hard for their iniquity. And payday is coming. God just writes the checks. They've earned this. 1 John 1.5 proclaims that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And we should remember that, that God is just righteous and good in all things, especially his judgment. Especially his judgment. He was then, and he still is now. Second, these enemies have already been identified in verse 3 as those who oppose God. David did not call upon the covenant-keeping name of the Lord for justice every time someone cut him off at a chariot crosswalk. Okay, every time somebody made him mad. Every time somebody would treat him poorly in line at the bakery, he wouldn't yell, may Yahweh vindicate me by his might and his strength and smite you down. That's not what David did. That's ridiculous. And that's not what we should do either. Okay? Instead, he calls upon the covenant-keeping name of God because he knows that these people are not just against him. They are against God. These are God's enemies. There's nothing arbitrary about this prayer. These are the godless fools who say in their heart, there is no God. And David was so confident that he was on God's side 
that he knew in his heart that God was on his. Beloved, if you want God in your corner, then you need to know him. You need to know that you know him. And more importantly, that he knows you. That he will not say on that day, depart from me, I don't know your name. I don't know who you are. I mean, this is a sobering reminder to all of us as we look at David's confidence in the Lord, knowing that God is on his side because he is on God's side, that we should all be like that. We should all carry this confidence, this confession of faith. Because, friend, you do want God in your corner. You want God to be your sword and your shield. Psalm 24, 8 asks the question, Who is the King of glory? The Lord. And using the covenant name of God again there, what does the rest of the verse say about Him? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. When judgment comes, you want to be on the right side of His sword. You know, a lot of people today really want to be on the right side of history. And we come across that all the time. I mean, just recently, I mean, what, what, are, they, what are they talking about in the news here in the last week or two about possibly renaming John Wayne Airport and tearing down his statue because of some things that he said in, a, in an interview back in the 1970s that you know, some people are saying, oh, you're taking it out of context. Other people are saying, well, no, it's what he said. You know, people are so concerned about being on the right side of history. People are so concerned about making sure that everybody loves them, everybody likes them, and everybody accepts what they have to say. And everybody wants to make sure that future generations will not look back and be ashamed of whatever it is that we're doing now. That's, that's the primary concern that we see in our culture, in the news, all the time. But friends, it is much more important more important than being on the right side of history that you are on the right side of Jesus' sword when he comes back to judge this world. When he comes back to set things right. I mean, look back at our text. Notice again that David does not pray for the strength to fight his enemies. He doesn't pray that God would embolden him or give him more, more ammunition against the enemy. He doesn't take this righteous task upon himself, but he submits to his sovereign God for vindication. Listen, if you are actually right and the other person is actually wrong, then you don't need to fix it. Okay? Because God's got you. God's got you on it. He knows. He knows what's going on. So there's the question. Again, Who do you turn to for justice, for retribution, for reckoning? Do you run to the judge of the world? Or do you immediately take it upon yourself? And do you give in to that sense of justice as it swells within your chest? Do you defend your own honor and do you clear your own name? Do you take it all on? Or do you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and go running into the fire? Or do you take it to the Lord in prayer? Where do you go? And give it to him. Friends, don't be so foolish. Let's follow David's example. Let's defer to the Lord for retribution. Because our God is not only mighty to save, he is mighty to protect, to preserve, and to keep us until the day arrives. I mean, David does here in this psalm. But that's not where it stops. Finally, we see here the conclusion of the matter. The song continues to get louder and faster. It just keeps gaining momentum as we go until finally we get to the end here and it explodes in verses 6 and 7 where we see David's confidence in deliverance. David's confidence in deliverance. Look at the last two verses. He says, With a freewill offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. God is, God is so good to David, and has been so good to David, that David here is so confident that God will deliver him. He says, I will do this because God has done it. This free will offering that is described here in the text, it's not a bribe, 
It's not a bargaining chip. But it goes above and beyond a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It is a sign of David's appreciation for something that hasn't happened yet. He anticipates his prayers will be answered. So he worships freely from the heart because he wants to. In the middle of so much pain and despair, his joy is so full at this point that he calls upon the covenant-keeping God by name, shouting, I will give thanks to your name, O Yahweh, for it is good. Why? Why does David do this? Where does his confidence come from? For he has delivered me from every trouble, and my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. Now you might be wondering, how could David be so sure? How could David know the end from the beginning? But let's not forget that even here in the wilderness of Ziph, in the pit of despair, in utter darkness, being betrayed like he has been, let's not forget that David has already received multiple revelations from the Lord that he would eventually be what? King of Israel. And that hasn't happened yet. I mean, he remembered the time that he fought a lion in the wilderness as a boy. He recalled the time that Samuel anointed him to be king instead of his brothers. And even here in the wilderness of Zith, Jonathan, Saul's son, found him before Saul did and encouraged him by saying, Do not fear, for the hand of, my, of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the text says that this word strengthened David's hand in the Lord. So you see, you can't be king if you're dead. It just doesn't work that way. You have to be alive to become king of Israel. Either God is faithful and he is going to keep his word and David will live and eventually become king someday, or God is a liar and David's a dead man. Those are the two options that David has. That's his crisis of faith right now. Is God true? Is God faithful? Will he preserve David? Will he eventually become king? Or is God a liar? Is Saul more powerful than, than God is? This psalm, and every other psalm that David wrote, shows us where he landed on that issue. You say, that's nice for David? But I haven't been promised a kingdom. And I don't have any guarantee that justice will be served in my situation. Well, first of all, that's not true. You have been promised a kingdom. And you have been promised perfect justice and peace. And those things are coming. But that's not even the point. Beloved, that's not the point of this passage or what we're looking at this morning. The point is that God is faithful. He is forever faithful and perfect, and he has never made a mistake, and he never will. And everything that he has promised will happen, all of it, exactly the way that he has promised it. Not one part will be skewed. Not one part will be slipped. Not one part will be lost. Everything that God promises happens just the way that he promised it. That is why it is so important for us to continually study this book. Because God has revealed his plan for redemption. And he makes no mistakes. Perfect peace, perfect justice will be accomplished. And so as Christians, as believers, as those who follow Yahweh, the same God, as those who have placed their, their faith in his Son and the Lord Jesus Christ for the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins, we do not ignore or deny the existence of evil. Right? But instead, we look around us at the sinful mess of a fallen world, knowing that someday it will be restored to perfection. It will be made perfect. And we take no pleasure in the fate of the wicked, yet we long for that day to come. We want that day to come. We want him to rule and to reign with perfect equity over the earth. And we say, come quickly. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't know about you, but my heart has been grieved within the last month at just how things have ramped up on the abortion issue. 
I mean, my heart just sinks below the ground that I'm standing on when I think about where we have gone as a country and what we are currently doing and condoning. It's sickening. It's disgusting. And when those things come across our our news feeds and now we're not even protecting the life of a child who has been born in this country, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Please, put an end to this. Establish your kingdom of perfect peace and justice. Come quickly. Establish your indestructible kingdom of righteousness and love. Because you realize that once that kingdom is established, it's not going away. It's here forever. And we get to enjoy the presence and the love of our Savior forever. This is the hope that we have. That we have in a faithful covenant-keeping God. And this God has left us a written trust, a written promise, and the seal of the Holy Spirit to end the strife, to end war, to end murder and perversion and slander and even betrayal. Like David, we too can be confident in the faithfulness of God to one day deliver us. Well, Joseph Scriven was an educated Irishman from a wealthy family in the 1800s. Born with a silver spoon, he had an easy childhood, and he even met the love of his life in his early 20s. He didn't have to wait very long to find her. Unfortunately, his fiancée drowned the night before their wedding day. Stricken with grief, he set sail for Canada, where 15 years later he fell in love again. Good for you, Joe. Only this time his fiancée fell sick with pneumonia and died. Again, right before they were to be married. Rather than destroy the man completely, these events drove Yosef deeper into the arms of his Savior. He devoted the rest of his life towards tutoring, preaching, and helping others wherever he could. He went on to write over 115 hymns of the faith. Possibly the most memorable song that he wrote began as a comforting poem for his mother, when she became terribly sick. Its original title was Pray Without Ceasing, but later it was put to music, much like our psalm, and called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. The middle verses read, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. His arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Friends, when trials come, when betrayal hits you in the face, when it knocks you down onto the pavement, when the walls cave in, where do you run to? How do you pray when you are betrayed? Do you rely on your own strength to see it through? Or is God set before you? Do you run to the bar or to the bedroom and hide under the pillows and the covers and just pray that everything goes away? Do you reach for the phone before reaching for your Bible? Friends, I pray that we never forget the friend that we have in Jesus. When you have been wronged, or when godless men go after you because they can't go after God, take it to the Lord in prayer. Cry out to the Lord, for He is the one who hears. Confess your faith in His perfect faithfulness, for He is the one who helps. And remain confident in His deliverance, for our God is the one who saves. Heavenly Father, we just thank You again for Your goodness, for Your grace, for Your mercy, for Your love, for Your loving kindness, that steadfast love that accompanies who You are for being the eternal present, the I am of the I am, the self-sufficient, self-sovereign, self-reigning and ruling one who, who doesn't rely on anyone or anything else to live and to breathe, but you give us our life and our breath. 
Lord, thank you for being so in control of everything. Thank you for being a God who saves and a God who delivers, but also a God who returns the evil back onto wicked men. Lord, again, thank you for your grace. Lord, we know that all of us are wicked men, that there was a time when every single one of us in this room, we were all your enemies. We all rebelled against you in the grossest way possible, and yet through your grace, you have saved us through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. Lord, again, we know that our sin did not come at so so light a cost, but we thank you for the sacrifice that was made for us on our behalf. Thank you for showing us mercy. Thank you for calling us out of darkness. And Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who has not been saved, that you would call them out of darkness, that you would take the blinders off of their eyes, that you would unstop their ears, and that you would speak to their hearts this morning, and that you would draw them unto yourself. Lord, again, you are such a great and good and gracious God. You have given us so much to be thankful for. You have accomplished so much for us on our behalf. I pray that when we are betrayed, I pray that when that sense of justice swells up within our chest, that we would not take it upon ourselves. We would not rely on our own strength and our own cunning and our own wisdom, but instead we would give it to you because you are the God who saves. You are the God who knows all things, sees all things, and understands all things, and we don't. We are not you, Lord, but we commit ourselves to you, and we thank you for the provisions that you have given us in your word. I pray that we would remember these things. I pray that we would be changed by them. I pray that as we are met with that temptation, even throughout this week, to defend ourselves, that rather than defend, we would defer and that we would take these things to you immediately in prayer. What a friend we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you have done and all that you will do for us, Lord. Thank you for your word. We commit all of this to you in your name. Amen.